Lord, thank you for the majesty of your creation and the enormity of your work in the world. We um, invite you tonight to bless us as we consider um, how great you are and the work of your hands. We, we need our minds to be sharpened and illuminated and inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, help me as I talk, help us as we think and share. In the name of Jesus, King Jesus, Amen. Okay, so I do a clap, which a lot of line things. And um, tonight's talk, as you can see, is called uh, The Incarnation, uh, Detour or Destiny. That might not be a question that occurs to you as to whether the incarnation is a detour or a destiny, but actually it's a question that is very, very relevant. I will maintain that for the vast majority of Christians, it's a detour. The incarnation is an incidental doctrine, um, not a core fundamental, not even the doctrine. Um, what you will see as we go through this tonight is that if we roll the clock back to the second century, uh, the incarnation would be the central doctrine. And almost everything changes if you take that angle. Uh, my subtitle is uh, how Descartes narrowed our view of reality and humanity with it. Again, that probably won't seem to be directly relevant to the incarnation, but I hope by the end of the evening you'll see it is. Descartes, of course, in the minds of many people, uh, framed modernity. We live in a, when you hear the adjective Cartesian, that's just the adjective from Descartes. So if you ever see C-A-R-T-E-S-I-N, that's just means of Descartes. We live in a Cartesian world, the age of science, the enlightenment is very much framed by his thinking now, Descartes' thinking was a bit like a meme. You know, I don't know that he, as an individual, crafted ideas that he purposefully uh, disseminated, but I think he was part of a movement and he was, in many ways, the high point of it. I spend, I spend my life fighting Descartes. So um, th uh, this is not a casual set of observations I'm going to give you tonight. Firstly, uh, let me just connect with what Ron, I think, I think you really thrilled us with, which is how Einstein restored mystery to nature. And um, that restoration of mystery to nature, I mean, mystery is actually a very important word. I won't go into it too much. Um, it will become important when we talk about Descartes but it's worth defining the word mystery. Um, mystery could mean we don't understand it. So I could call something a mystery that's a mystery to me. That's not the meaning here. The other meaning is the nature of things is a mystery and that's its nature. And you won't get beyond it. Now this actually is, and I'm not gonna talk about it tonight, but a very important quality of the Cappadocian Fathers was their comfort with mystery. And I would argue a lot of systematic theology is uncomfortable with mystery and wants to understand things too much. There's almost a battleground of epistemology between those who want certainty and those who are comfortable with mystery because they think mystery is in the nature of things. So when I think, I think Ron, you'd agree when we say Einstein restored mystery, it's, a, it's the nature of things. It's not that uh, we don't yet understand it, but we will in a few years' time. Uh, stunningly, what Einstein did was shrink space and time, which we think common sense tells us are absolutes. And if you think about it, they're absolutes that define mortality. I mean, if we think of mortality and immortality, almost all of it will use the categories of time you don't live forever. Or space, you know, the dissolution of matter to actually define mortality. 
But eerily, even in the apparently mortal wor world, these registers of the bulk of things turn out to be relative. And the stunning achievement of Einstein, expressing it very much in layman's terms, is they are not absolutes. Light is the absolute in the natural world. And eerily, as, as any body approaches the speed of light, space and time shrink exponentially, such that if we ever caught up to it, I presume space and time would not, not exist. We'd be immortal. And the whole time that Ron was talking, I was thinking of what Jesus said. He didn't say, I'm the time of the world and I'm the space of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world. So what, the, I mean, there's a very practical effect to all of this in that in ancient worlds, the picture of mankind and the earth at the center of things was a sustainable picture intellectually. But as we live in a world where we now know we're living in the expanding cosmos and expanding universe, we feel little. And certainly, you know, people I've spoken to, that's almost a barrier to faith. Like, how can you tell me that God says I'm so significant when, you know, we're living in these multiverses? It's a big, small question, but in which the importance of being a human being seems to be diminished but once you enter an Einsteinian world it rebalances things in favor of being a human being so to me that is uh, almost setting us up for a relook at the man Christ Jesus who shrank space and time the incarnation so what I want to do in this talk is take that as a beachhead uh, to move to a richer view of the incarnation. Now the way I'm going to approach this is what I would call not a specialist religious way, but what I call a totalitarian way. The claims of the incarnation are utterly intellectually totalitarian. They cover cosmology, they cover nature, they cover science, they cover philosophy. And you can't think about the incarnation in a religious framework. The great patristic fathers, and tonight I'm going to concentrate on Irenaeus, the great patristic fathers were philosophically sophisticated, extremely philosophically sophisticated in ways that would shock us, by which I mean they didn't throw out the Greco-Roman philosophers. They engaged with them. They knew Plato better than we did, and clearly Irenaeus in his arguments was using 30% of his sources were Greek thinkers. And he was quite happy to use their categories because they seem to have such a big view of Christ that this could amplify and, and give them language to talk about what God had done in Christ. So I hope that gets you intrigued. Let's go now, however, to a uh, really religious view, which is the interpretation of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. Very specific life, feet, hands, eyebrows, that walked the earth for a short span of 33, 34 years in a place that we all can visit today, towns with the same name now that they had then, landscapes that look pretty well the same then as they do now. When Anne and I went to Israel, one of the epic moments was uh, standing and looking across into the Judean wilderness where Jesus would have spent the 40 days, 40 nights. It is as barren and stark and beautiful a landscape now as it was then. Um, this one life, how do we interpret it? And I will put forward there are two within, within evangelical Christianity, two views. The common view is what I'll call the redemption view, 
which is uh, the goal of the life of Jesus, was the forgiveness of sins. It's framed around a redemptive model. And most of the language, the expiration is around the forgiveness of sins, in which case the means to that becomes the cross. And the incarnation is a means to an end. This is... Uh, this leads to what I'd call the incarnation as a detour model. In other words, I, I think quite facetiously call it my bungee jump model. And I think it's a mental model most people have. Christ is in heaven as part of the Godhead. The Godhead sees human beings have got a problem. Better do something about it. Commissioner Rescue Act. Jesus plunges down on the bungee jump, does his thing, dies on the cross, forgives sins. Rises from the dead because he's the son of God. You can't keep a good man down. Up he goes, bang, back into heaven. And he continues on as before. Right? I think that's kind of the mental model that's in a lot of people's mind. He didn't begin anything. He didn't inaugurate a new reality. He rescued us to take us to his reality. So it's a little bit perhaps of a stark representation, but I think entirely fair in the paradigms that are in people's mind. Uh, the other model is the incarnational view. And the incarnational view is a view that famously says the goal is not the forgiveness of sins, but the goal of creation and, re uh, and retaining recovering the glory of the created order and that the method of that reclamation is the resurrection as much as it is the cross. I'm not going to talk about this tonight but one of the criticisms of Protestant theology, the theology I hear every day is that there is no soteriology of the resurrection. A guy called David Gaffin made that claim in a book called which was called I think Resurrection and Redemption I'm not sure what does that mean it means just what I said and it sounded facetious but frankly that's what the way people think the resurrection was not part of the redemptive mechanism the mechanism was a legal transaction to forgive sins which once finished therefore Christ rose why did he rise because he was divine in which case it's just an exit door This model says, no, no, no. The resurrection and the cross must be viewed as a unified whole where the work is being done by the Godhead. And the work is the recreate, nothing less than the recreation of the cosmos in the body of Christ. As I often say, the resurrection is much better thought of as a miracle of physics than as a moral miracle. So, the law of gravity was being recreated. The laws of thermodynamics were being recreated. The laws of cell biology were being recreated. The nature of potassium and magnesium, blood cells, white cells, oxygen, were all being recreated so that they could hold the glory of God. This is the incarnation as the destiny of all things. Irenaeus famously said the incarnation would have been necessary with or without sin. It was the main plan the whole time. Well, it'll come out as I talk it through. But if I were to foreshadow it, you have to have a very, very big view of the beginning of all things, which is creation and the intent of creation and where it's all going. Because, Janet, I won't go too far into it, but we frame the problems of creation um, primarily through the moral filter of sin. There are problems with creation from the word go. Because creation involves change. How can an eternal God inhabit change? It's a complete paradox which bothered Plato no end and the Greeks. Quite rightly so. 
change makes us grow older, even without death. I mean, how does change get linked in with transcendence? It's just a massive issue, which we'll find the answer to one day, but not yet. So the incarnation is God's plan to create, the, within the created order, not within heaven, to have his dwelling place. So I suppose a biblical way of talking about the incarnation as destiny would be Emmanuel, God with us, God inhabiting flesh. Now the problems with this detour model, the redemption model, and I think it's very pervasive when I listen to... Oops, that was just a phone. <laughs> when I listen to uh, you know, lots of sermons and prayers... Um, it's so revolving around um, sin. It's so revolving around redemption. Long ago, um, I recognised that these were not the, what I call, epic passages from the New Testament. Uh, I've got the picture here of a mountain landscape and there are these top of the mountain passages. What do I mean by that? When I read them, even from when I was 17 and 18 year old, years old, I knew they were some of the most lyrical, sublime words humans had ever written. They're all characterized by almost no adjectives, powerful, axiomatic, simple, glorious, image-ridden sentences that seem to, their scope seemed to shine like a light across the entire cosmos. And as I read them, I knew that the people who wrote them saw something that I never saw when they looked at the life of Jesus. Um, and, and clearly these passages I'm about to go into are not incidental. They're not at the back end of an epistle. They're at the front end. They clear, uh, many of them appear to have been uh, liturgies or mandates that were quoted. So what do they say? Um, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 has the Son as the architect of all reality. And when I read those words as a younger Christian, I sort of thought it's got to be hyperbole. It's got to be exaggeration. How can the whole world be framed in one man? It's got to be hyperbole, which I no longer think is true. Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. Uh, Rick, uh, our beloved Rick, um, I was about to say Rick agrees with me. I agree with Rick that Ephesians is the high point book of Paul's thinking, not Romans. Ephesians, not written to solve a problem, but to declare a point of view, where really in this incredibly important uh, prologue, he goes further and he identifies intent as being the source of all creation. The desire, the passionate desire of God is behind all that we're now involved in. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, picks it up again. Obviously, a completely different author. I've speculated it's Apollos, but as the early church fathers said, in fact, no one knows who wrote it, which I think is fantastic. I just think of the bench strength that must have been there in those days. The epic, through whom he made the worlds. That, it's all it gets is a clause. This is what I, I say, this is the beginning of a 10,000-word essay if I'm writing it, but it's just a through whom he made the, the, the world. He framed the cosmos through him. In a, and he is the express image of his person. That's all that passage in the beginning of Hebrews. And finally, the very famous John 1 that says exactly the same thing. Christ explained as the Logos, he explains the cosmos. So none of these passages actually even mention, frankly, sin and forgiveness and the cross. They don't choose to mention it. Their entire framework is the architecture of creation and the end of creation. And as a young Christian, when I read it, I realized these guys are in a place, frame of reference, I'm not in. So that's what I'd call the incarnational view. Let's remind ourselves what it says. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is clearly a 
liturgy or hymn. It's always, you look, it's generally like in Tom Wright's translation, it's italicized. It, it came from somewhere. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that phrase is incredibly uh, evocative and has two meanings. It's a Genesis 1 meaning and a Matthew 28 meaning. This is where the resurrection is not a bungee jump, it's the beginning of the new creation. For by him all things were created. This man who walked around 33 years, dusty feet, created all things. In heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, now they go where none of us would have gone. We would have gone to the flowers, the waves. They don't. They go into the authority systems behind the world that Daniel sees as behind all human organization. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or he created authority. He created the very concept of organization and kingship. All things were created through him and for him. He is the goal of all things. And he is before all things. And the magnificent phrase, in him all things cohere or are hold together. I often think about that. I think nobody quite knows what's holding the atomic energy of atoms together. He is holding all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may have the preeminence. Now read that through again as many times as you like. How many sermons do you hear on that? Where is kind of forgiveness, guilt and the cross in that? I'm not saying they're not important, but they're subsets. They come in later. This is the mountaintop picture of what God's doing. So that's a picture of the incarnational view from the New Testament. Um, the other problem is the patristic fathers themselves. I thought I'd give you a bit of Irenaeus that might get you reading him. Who's heard this sort of lofty, brilliant, stunning mind? Let me give you a bit about Irenaeus. Uh, French lived about 130 AD to one, uh, perhaps 190, 200. First, really, uh, the first theologian we have who had most of the New Testament. A friend of Polycarp, as Anne and I were talking this morning, working him out. Now, Polycarp, Polycarp's, he, as a young man, he met Polycarp in Rome. Who was Polycarp? One of the great church fathers who knew John. This man had conversations with Polycarp. Tell me what John said again. Right? This is only two generations. For, it's like John was his, John the Apostle was his grandfather. If we think of ourselves, if I'm a 20-year-old person, my grandfather's still, or whatever. You know. So Irenaeus was... Um, very close to the early church. We have a vast amount of his writings. He was so popular that the bishops gave him secretaries to write and everything. Um, like my book on Irenaeus against the heresies is about, nine, uh, it's about 600 pages long. And, and people, you know, he's gorgeous, but he's, he's difficult. I'll, I'll say more about him next week. But listen to this. There is therefore one God who by the word and wisdom, he's quoting Proverbs 8, which was terribly important to the patristic fathers, created and arranged all things. But this creator who has granted the world to the human race, like every one of these clauses, I mean, I know where he's getting that from, the heavens are yours, Psalm 115, but the earth is given to men. But, but the vast understanding in what is just an adjectival clause, who has granted the world to the human race and who, as regards his greatness, is indeed unknown to all who have been made by him. 
For no man has searched out his height, either among the ancients or any of those still alive. The ancients would include, by the way, the Greek philosophers, not just the Jewish. He quotes them extensively. All the people who've tried to search out the divine mind. As regards his greatness, he's unknown, but as regards his love, he is always known through him by whom he ordained all things. Now this is his word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the last times, get this, put your seatbelts on, this is the great statement, the famous statement of the Patristic Fathers, who in the last times was made a man among men that he might join the end to the beginning that is man to God. Wow. Famously, the patristic father said God became man in order that man might become God. It's a principle, it's called deification that we quadrify the Trinity via the incarnation. He, about a page later, had the very, very famous statement, the glory of God is a human fully alive and a human fully alive is one who has seen God. And then you get 600 pages of this stuff. <laughs> but what I'm saying, this is an incarnational view. This is not about the mechanism of sins being forgiven. This is about the beginning and end of all things. So the redemption detour model clearly doesn't take that into account. I think the consequences of the detour model are, in Bentley Hart's word, have disastrous theological results. Uh, frankly, it frames all inquiry into a religious pathway. You're left asking questions like moral questions about the work of God and the gospel, um, how I get sin out of my life, is this a sin or is that a sin? What do I do if I see sin in other people? I'm, I'm quoting you know, questions I've heard asked at the church I go to. And since creation is sidelined, we feel God is more interested in how we fallen creatures can be rescued and made righteous. That's his interest. I think all of that privatizes faith. So incarnation becomes some special interest of Christians. Whereas the more epic view I've just been through is clearly not, not special interest. Heaven and eternity replace creation as the end of all things. So going to heaven, being eternal is the goal. It was not the goal Irenaeus was talking about. He spent ages in his book Against the Heresies talking about the necessity of there being a physical resurrection and a physical recreation. And we get very little mandate to act in this world within that framework. So let me go a little bit further now and talk about what I call the landscape of the detour model. And the point I want to make is the landscape is not a religious landscape. It's a philosophical landscape that pretty well everybody shares. And I think this landscape essentially views uh, nature as uh, a reality and God as a metaphysics. Um, there's an implicit separation of God and nature. In behind any model, there is an, what's what we call an epistemology. There is an assumption about how we know what we know. And wrapped up in it all, there is a view of humanity. So the landscape I'm talking about is a landscape of metaphysics, view of reality, epistemology, and anthropology. Everybody has them. They don't use the big words, but everybody's got them. Everybody works inside pretty much that landscape. I would say... The modern mind is characterized by a dualism. And so the most common phrase to characterize uh, Descartes' picture is Cartesian dualism. What, what, is, what does this dualism mean? It means that nature is real. It's an objectified, bulky world. It's got its own logic within itself. I understand the tree by its chemistry. I understand the tree by its cause and effect relationships. How do I get the answer to things? It's actually, nature has within itself its own, it is a, it is a system 
complete in itself. That, that, that can be explained by itself. The divine tends to be supernatural. Now, the word supernatural is important. It kind of means, it could mean it's there, but it could mean it's not there. It's like your imagination. It's implicitly subordinated to the world of nature. But supernatural, natural is a pair that everybody in our world has. And it's language that's never in the Bible. And in fact, implies dualism. In our world, we live in the age of science where knowing is all about proof. Everybody says, can you prove that? Where's the proof? How do you know it's real? TV ads, like, I've got scientific tests prove. There's this sense that science is the modern epistemology. It's the modern philosophy. And that's why people like Dawkins can write books and get away with it. Um, because there's a, now in our world, there's a sense of the purism of science. Yes, I think that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a good one. The ugly ditch. It's kind of like these these worlds, and, and but the relationship between these two worlds is almost the territory that philosophy traverses um, uh, between the um, what is the, what is the nature of the, the word the word divine. Um, could be replaced by uh, other useful words will be transcendence. What is transcendent about life? Um, but the world we live in is a world very much dominated by science and proof. It's that, this is incredibly important for what, um, what I'm about to say. Very importantly, humanity today is stuck in between, between some, perhaps a spirit, perhaps we're just animals. Perhaps we're not in any quality different from dogs and fish from which we evolved. Um, perhaps we are only a machine. Herb Simon, the, you might have heard me mention him before, the Nobel Prize winner at Carnegie Mellon where I was a visiting professor a long while ago when I had a conversation with him. I mean, he's a brilliant guy, but his words to me were the mind's a machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. Um, yes, it is. So just to repeat for the tape, what Peter's talking about is Karl Popper's critique of the scientific method. What Popper said is you can only disprove something, you can never prove it. I think there are more fundamental critiques, which I'll go into. But, but the, the, the faith in science is called modernism, and it's a faith that a lot of people are losing, hence the phrase postmodernism, uh, which is just the definition of, oh, shit, it's not working. I don't know what is, but it's post. Um, you know, the great promise of science is control. And as I tell people in the world I live in, which is organisational life, we've never had more data, we've never had more information, we've never had more processing power. Who feels we have never been more in control of the world and its destiny? Well, nobody does. Well, that's the definition of postmodernism. Oh, shit. Like, because the promise is if you understand everything, you'll control it. And it does not appear to be working. So there's a, a huge problem to this. That having been said, the power of science, I mean, small example would be Sydney University, is it Sydney University or the government and the pharmaceutical benefits? There's a very big move to exclude any kind of parallel medicine from pharmaceutical benefits because we can't prove it. Um, vitamins and all that kind of stuff because there are dark sides to science. Um, you know, it's a business model. Um, but does that make sense, that, that view we're in of a dualistic world? Well, um, what I want to talk about now is um, really how we got to that world via Descartes. 
And I want to show that um, this model actually has historical origins. And it was not always the model by which people looked at the world by any means. It's, it's a modern way. Um, more importantly, it has absolutely fatal flaws in its logic and in its assumptions. Um, and it does not explain life. Science does not explain life or human development and was critiqued from the outset. I'll go further and argue that incarnation and religion happens within this model. Um, that this model, in fact, does violence to the incarnation. The incarnation doesn't fit in this model. It's very strange in this model. But um, I think part of the, uh, uh, I will argue the failure of the modern evangelical mind to grasp the, the destiny model of the incarnation is we're too much engrossed in this landscape of, of reality. So the model has got uh, um, also, uh, to me, rather amusing um, side effects. Although we live in a world, what I've noticed is the more people are committed to the middle bit, that objectified knowledge of nature and cause and effect reasoning is the only real. They are very susceptible to flipping right across the other side. I've seen that in major organisations. I was consulting to one of the biggest management consulting organisations in Australia. It was their tax division, which was huge. And, and they were completely in the middle of the world of data and reality. But they're, it's, they're, they're there naively, frankly. And that whole unit was being, that whole organisation was being infiltrated by somebody whose leadership development program was based on magic. And they, I, can remember, I can remember at dinner them telling me about how this lady would open, lived on a farm and she could actually open the gates two kilometres away just by meditation. And uh, they were sort of jaw-droppingly breathless at what I thought, you guys have got to be kidding. But, but they were just sitting ducks because, frankly, you're so naive if, you're, if you think the nature of reality is objectified. And I saw this today. I had lunch today um, up at Tryon Road. And I saw this. I had to take a photo. I love this. A bit of, if you want uh, some self-mastery, there is coffee cup reading uh, from Prisca, free ad for Prisca. And um, you can book. It's only $30 for 30 minutes. And uh, you'll read your future in the coffee cup. Either it's a joke or it's cynical manipulation or someone takes it seriously. But ironically, in our objectified world, we're very up for being actually going supernatural. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I, I just wanted to include that for a bit of fun. Uh, the main point is that this dualistic knowledge, uh, dualism neuters the incarnation. Does that make sense to you? That if you actually think nature, being physical, is just being physical and that explains it and supernatural is somewhere else disconnected. There is no divine in the natural and there is no natural in the divine. They are different categories. What you've done is made the bridge of the incarnation hugely bigger than it is. And, and very strange. So... Nature is an independent system with its own logic, its physicality, run by the senses. It has no transcendence in it. It has no divinity in it. And equally, God is totally separate. Now that separation, I think the dualism is very driven by the doctrine of total depravity, which I'm not gonna go into now, but essentially God's holiness means he has to be separate. He can't share anything with us. I've got to actually emphasize the gap between sinful human beings and a holy God. And that's a kind of Christian dualism. I think that Christian dualism is enabled because it's mapped onto the other dualism. Does that make sense to you? To be honest with you, in a more holistic era, I don't think it would have flown because people had a more integrated view of nature and God. So therefore, the incarnation is really a mystery. And it's too much of a mystery. And so we can't get into it. And as a result, 
Paul's great prayer cannot be answered. His great prayer in Ephesians, I take Ephesians 1 incredibly seriously. And I, I, you know, I've said before, I've learned it all off by heart. I would recite it at least once a week to myself in my morning meditations. And I take very seriously his prayers. There are three prayers he prays. I say, well, okay, this is clearly his goal for people. That the eyes of your, beginning with the eyes of your understanding would be illuminated that you might know him. Now, what does it mean? It's not some, it is not just um, an emotional affection. It's this. If we cannot articulate the incarnation somewhat like Irenaeus did, we don't know him. We're just juniors. We're people like the writers to the Hebrews, the first half of Hebrews, and you end up saying, I cannot talk to you about what I want to talk to you about because you keep cycling around the beginnings of faith, all this business about cleansing and all that. Read Hebrews 6. I can't get on to the good stuff. I think we're in baby land. The good stuff, the meaty stuff, what was the meaty stuff in Hebrews? You should be able to answer that immediately. And as a result, he is a priest forever after the Melchizedek. Ah, resurrection. The power of an endless life. He's getting into this Colossians territory. So to know Christ is not a waffly thing. It's to begin to peer into the stuff Irenaeus was talking about. How did a man frame the universe? We've got to have an answer to that. We've got to be thinking about that every day. We've got to have language for that. And let me tell you, when I compare the depth of what I'm reading in the Patristic Fathers with what we get fed today, it's like we are just three-year-olds in kindergarten, to be honest. You've got to keep the sermons to 20 minutes. The congregation will go to sleep, despite the fact that they're upper-middle-class people with university degrees. Don't give them more than 20 minutes. Frankly, I, I got that stuff when I was about... 11 as a Christian. Yep. And it's not just the sermons. The kids are crazy. That's right. They make it worse. Yeah, so, so I think I, I'm, what, I, what excites me about this is the, the, the specificness of what Paul was after was, uh, was around the knowledge of him, I, I am pretty sure, was the incarnation. The, the guy who walked around 33 years ago, even the guy you think rose from the dead, which is a pretty big claim, I want to take you further. He's the architect and end of all creation. We have wandered into the blueprint of the cosmos. That's a summary of Colossians and John and Hebrews and Irenaeus and Gregory of Nyssa. And it's wonderful. And a, a very much bigger story to tell the world than, let me just tell you the news, you're a sinner. And if you don't believe, you go to hell. It's a, whether or not that's true, the question is, there's a bigger story. So let's, um, let's have a look at where we, how we got here with Descartes. Um, Descartes, 1596 to 1650, was the often called the father of the Enlightenment. We're in the Enlightenment. I like calling the Endarkenment. Um, where it's the age of science that defines reality and modernity. Uh, by the way, important to note, Descartes was uh, an Orthodox Catholic. This guy's not, not, you know, we're not looking here at Christians and non-Christians. We're looking at good ideas and bad ideas. And he thinks he's doing theology. And he thinks he's doing you know, it's actually, it's actually sobering. I mean, when, for instance, Irenaeus wrote against the heresies, he wasn't writing against atheists. His, his was the first era where the, the, his enemies were actually in the Christian church. They were Gnostics. So the battle of ideas does matter. Although, interestingly, all these people I admire, obviously Irenaeus, they were, no, they were known for their peacefulness. They were known for their inclusiveness. We have a much narrower view of the word heretic than they did. They did not consider people whom today was, oh, they're heretics. They didn't consider them heretics. It was a broad church. We're discussing. Here's what I think. I could be wrong. Irenaeus' name means peace, and he was widely regarded as a tremendous peacemaker. 
despite his huge love for truth. And the book is called Against the Heresies. And the first, like if you read it, you'll read the first two. I read a bit to Anne. You wouldn't believe what they believed. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. It's like Star Wars. So he's got opponents. He doesn't, he's merciless with them, but he loves them. So the idea of um, grace was very important to the way these guys lived. Anyway, back to Descartes. What did Descartes do? Well, the, the lecturer at university whom I admired the most, my sweet friend, Rob Jackson, epic intellect and wonderful man, if he hears this, thank you, Rob, for all you did for me. He thought Descartes was, in, was mad. He thought Descartes was insane because of how he did, this is my model, not Rob's, but essentially because of his expectations. And the whole point about Descartes was he hated ambiguity. If I read to you, like he's got, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a booklet called Rules for the Precision of the Mind or Rules for the Governance of the Mind. It's pretty Nazi type. But the whole point is why would any human being want to be in any state of uncertainty? You, it's black and white. It's a black and white world. There's no grey. And he took that incredibly seriously. And you must remember that in what I'm about to explain to your system. That is important. And by the way, it's a bit chilling to map some fundamentalist Christianity onto this as well. Remember what I said about mystery? Which is, uh, it's grey and I don't understand everything and that's okay. Now, if you actually have that as your goal and if you're obsessive and driven and brilliant, then you've only got one choice left, by the way. And that choice is to narrow your definition of reality, which is what he did. Essentially, he objectified knowledge and objectified the world. The world is a machine with cause and effect, cogs and levers. That was his picture of the world. You might say, well, what's not in the world? Well, the answer is sort of like people. People do messy things like have opinions, kiss each other, have histories, speak different languages. All of that was messy. So he actually excluded that from reality. They were illusions. So famously, he, although he did love languages, he despised their study. He famously said, why would I want to know Latin? I will know no more than Caesar's servant girl. I read that and think, actually, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and hear what Caesar's servant girl said. He wasn't interested in sociology. He, was, he wasn't interested in poetry. He wasn't interested in anything that was great. The world's a machine. And as a machine, it will therefore respond to maths. The illusion, which if you don't believe me, then you have never been in corporate life, is the only thing real is a spreadsheet. Where's the data? Big data is the answer to everything. Now, if you think I'm making this up, I invite you to read one edition of the Academy of Management, the most prestigious management journal in the world. Every single article has got a regression analysis in it. Every single article treats everything like it is a cause and effect machine that will yield to maths. Let me give you an example. This is now one I read the other day on leadership. From my beloved host organization, people were very excited by this. I, I groaned, I thought, how, how dark is the darkness? <laughs> this was a way of picking leaders via artificial intelligence. So it was a very impressive mathematical regression analysis model that came up with a score. Tony, you're a 6.7% potential leader. Everyone was very excited by this and they'd, <laughs> they'd sold a lot of this to a lot of companies. And if you read it, whilst I'm mocking it, it would intimidate you. you, you your soul would sink. You think there's something wrong here, but I, I don't know what. Well, the answer is this model, which actually says the world's a machine and mass is the way to knowledge. Now, what a, let me just explain, which is how I had to explain to people the idiocy behind this. How Mass needs a unit. Am I right? If I'm going to add, subtract, divide, multiply, have quadratic equations, have a regression analysis, I need a unit. I need ones and twos. 
So if you look carefully at this system, it goes right back to, to dividing leadership into six units that are measurable. So straight away I've said, excuse me, since when was human behavior six units, like the numbers one, two, three, four, that you could, let's take respect. Exactly how do you quantify that into a unit? Can you explain that logical leap for me? So that I could get 1.2 as a score for respect, so you can multiply it by six? Can you just tell me that? Do you see what I mean? It's so pervasive that the spreadsheet's the answer. And if I said, no, the spreadsheet's not the answer, I'm gonna do a play. I'll do a pantomime of the culture of your organization. And we'll all dress up. And we'll all play different parts. And we'll do it with the board. Oh, hang on, <laughs> you know, that's fantasy land. Well, guess what, that's probably a lot closer to reality. The play would be a lot closer to reality than anything else that was going on. We did, we did something similar, by the way, with the board of Australia's biggest company the other day, and the board loved it. Because <laughs> they suspect that their organization's actually made up of human beings. Mass was Descartes' only way to knowledge. He banned other ways to knowledge because only an equation gives me, gives me reality and precision and an answer. So nothing else is an answer. Now what that ends up doing is completely sidelining human beings. We are part of an objective world. We're just one of the cogs in the machine and we end up being imprisoned. So this is a very dehumanized model of the world. Does that make sense? If the world's a spreadsheet, then we have a dehumanized model of the world. Uh, now, I know I've been hard on Descartes, but it's hard not to be if you read him. And I think that model is quite a complete capture of his system. The point about it is that it's a worldview. It gets continued. Well, this is the next slide. Thank you. Now we get the toxic combination of Descartes and Darwin. I love this. It, you know, how a common sense local view of minor adaptation between species got to explain the difference between a rock and me, I'm not quite sure, but apparently it does in the minds of people. It is the most commonly used phrase like, Tony, do you believe in evolution? I think, excuse me, do you mind, can we have a discussion about what you mean by that word? It's a big word. Um, what do you mean by it? It's a hypothesis. And what is the hypothesis meant to explain exactly? Now, these are basic questions that no one asks. But it's now it's such a sweeping meme that's covered the world. Oh, evolution's explained everything. God, transcendence, ethics, everything. Uh, yes? So Peter. Evolution. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. So, and, and yeah. Lennox yeah, it is. Well, it's actually worth reading uh, also Bentley Hart on Dawkins, who's the only difference between Lennox and Bentley Hart is that Lennox is much more gracious. <laughs> um, but anyway, we've got this thing called Darwinian evolution, which has some truth in it. What actually happened is that we got a toxic combination of the Cartesian system. So if you think about it, if the Cartesian system has actually said nature is a cause and effect machine, if it's actually established that, and it's totally understandable by science, and then I add into that the theory of the local adaptation of species that essentially is mutation plus natural selection is the formula, then guess what? I've, if it's true for one cog, it's true for them all. Putting them together, we actually get uh, evolution as a total worldview rather than a useful mechanism to explain quite a lot about life, but not everything. And so evolution now explains the cosmos and becomes a metaphor for everything evolving. Um, theories of leadership evolving, co uh, as you said, universes start evolving. And um, because M plus NS multiplied by big time equals the origins of everything. As far as I can work out, that's the formula. M is mutation, uh, nat plus natural selection, multiplied by lots of time is the theory of the origin of life. Yeah, like it, it's not got the elegance of E equals MC squared, but it's actually the truth. And the only way of explaining it is because it fell upon the soil of the Cartesian system. Now, um, interestingly, uh, very soon after his own day, Descartes had 
a rival. Like a lot of rivals, a bit like Van Gogh, he was before his time, unfortunately, and this guy's a great guy. Just, first of all, he's Italian. So we've got French versus Italian. This explains a lot. My wife will tell you all about that. If you know the French, you'll know how Descartes thinks. If you know the Italian, this guy's messy, can't get his life together. Uh, never as important as he wished he was, never got the jobs he wished he was, self-pitying, flamboyant. He's the total Italian. I love him. Um, Jean-Baptiste Vico, but he's today's man. If you want to read about Vico, um, if, if you're interested, very eloquently, uh, Isaiah Berlin famously wrote on this book, The Three Critics of the Enlightenment, of which Vico is one, and his essays on Vico are quite stunning. Vico um, began, Vico's counterpunch, he began as a Cartesian, a professor of philosophy. He believed it as a young man. Um, 1668 to 1744, so like one generation after Descartes. And then he began to be increasingly uneasy with the Cartesian system. And his reputations were profound counterpunches at the, at the logical heart. And what he said, amongst other things, he had this breathtaking phrase, you only understand anything per causas. Per causas, it's very famous, P-E-R, C-A-U-S-S-A-S. What did he mean? He said, the meaning of that system is actually in its purpose. You only understand anything if you understand why, not just how. Get it? It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You don't need to think very much longer about your own life to see how real this is. He went further, by the way, which I won't go into now. He had a breathtaking view of humanity. But the, uh, the only person who understands the why of a system is who? The person who made it. If I make a car, which we'll talk about later, I understand that system because I made it. But I didn't make nature, God did, so I'll never fully understand it. I should try, but I won't. He went further with maths and algebra. I love this. He said, well, the reason we understand maths and algebra is guess why? We made them. They are human systems which we made, so we understand them. But they don't explain reality fully. Brilliant thinker, brilliant thinker. So there's no true knowledge without why. He then said, obviously the toolkit's got to change. We need a human-centered toolkit. And um, guess what? This begins to put human beings back in the driver's seats as authors of reality. The goal of all knowledge, and I won't get into this now, stunningly, the goal of all knowledge is that I become united with the one I know. The goal of all knowledge is unity. Think about Jesus being the coherence of all things connecting us to God. The goal of all knowledge is actually like coetious. It's like making love. You don't, so this is not an objectified view of reality. The goal of knowledge is that I become one with, what, with the one I'm studying. That's what he said. Can you see the breadth of the thinking here of this man? Now, he, he's a sleeper, but in the last 100 years, he's got a growing reputation and widely now recognised as the father of social anthropology. Let's use Jeff and his wonderful... Does everyone know what Jeff does? He, you'll, you'll know after these slides. Jeff is the most wonderful artisan of restoring cars. And I thought the Ferrari and Jeff will demonstrate who wins in the contest between Vico and Descartes. So here we have, am I right? This is the Ferrari? Yep. Four years? Now, if we try to understand this Ferrari and say, what's the, what, you know, let's understand the system of the Ferrari, if we take the Descartes position, uh, the material causes will be um, its componentry. I could explain this Ferrari to you if I went into its engine configurations, its leather, the, the paintwork, and I, I would specify this endlessly and uh, talk to you about it 
And that would explain the Ferrari completely adequately. That would explain how we got that beautiful thing. Now, does anyone think that's really how we got that beautiful thing? So, that's what Descartes would have said. Um, what our friend Vico would have said is this. If it's going to play, which I don't know if it is. Oh. What we'll do is I'll prime them. Ignition on. The ignition on. Fuel pump going. Fuel pump, yep. Right, Rick, I've got to go. This I think Vico wins, don't you? I mean, uh, what's in that video that wasn't in the Cartesian system? Uh, uh, life, a human being, a uh, little bit of passion? <laughs> Noise, uh, did you hear? Excellent, excellent, good, good. This is the love of the system. This is the intent behind this componentry here. And Vico would never deny this componentry, but. I can only understand that by understanding who made the system and their love for it. That's how I understand it. That's how it got to be a beautiful thing. And so he said, it's like, you want to understand the tree? By all means, study its chemistry. By all means, use mass. But understand the tree is a bit like this Ferrari. I need to have a video of the guy who made the tree. I need to hear him saying, good, excellent, way, good on you, Angel. That tree is fantastic. We've got a tree. If I don't get that, I get nothing. That's what Vico said. Thanks, Jeff. We'll give Jeff a round of applause. <laughs> so I think where this leaves us is our final slide as to how to understand the universe, how to understand the cosmos um, is best explained that way. That is the best image for those who are listening. I have a wonderful photo of a mother hugging a newborn baby. That is the cosmos and God is love. Now I've made a shift which is very, very important in what I've just said and I'm closing with it. But I'm asking you to ask what word I've shifted to from what other big word I had. I had been talking about intent what am I talking about now? So I have equalized love and intent, which is exactly what Irenaeus did, exactly what Gregory, Gregory of Nyssa did. Intent, as far as God is concerned, is not objectives. It's not some clinical goal setting. It is a passionate design. If you read Ephesians 1, you will see he thunders through according to his good pleasure and purpose, according to his desire. And you need to, we need to look inside ourselves and find the most passionate love we had for another human being, how that stirred us, and say, I've now tasted a tiny bit of the intent of the universe. And, and when John says God is love, he is, he is actually saying that because love and the, the grace and intent, but love is the big word that is only that word explains the structure of reality. Now, I think you can see from here, if we go back to the, uh, in that picture of mother and child, I see God the Father, I see God the Son, I see us, and I see the cosmos. And for me, um, there was a moment in my life about three years ago when I really feel the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I was praying, Lord, I want you to be more real, more tangible to me. And I just had this instant flash of a thought. Reconceptualize your thoughts. It didn't come like this. I mean, these are the words to explain the thought that was suddenly in my soul. Recalibrate, reorient all of your 
mental models of the origin of the universe away from physics and Big Bang to conception in a matrix, in a womb. That explains the universe, conceived by love. And of course, that centralizes us. And now, if you, with that mental model, if we go back to Colossians, through whom he made all things, by whom and for whom we made all things, we begin to see the incarnation will be the flowering of that love. And I'll talk more about that. Um, I think I'll do one more talk because Anne told me I talk too long, talk too much, she gets bored, everyone gets bored. So um, I, I've uh, taken out of this uh, great big beautiful bit on uh, Thomas Aquinas and done SCOTUS, but uh, um, so next week I thought we'll come back in and actually kind of double down on the picture of uh, the incarnation as the destiny of all things and perhaps some more Irenaeus. Okay, that's it for the night.